0: The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple
1: Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Young people who choose to study at Australian universities and institutions are the lifeblood of our cities. They live, shop, study, relax and play in the CBDs across the nation. Students who choose purpose-built accommodation do so for a variety of reasons. It's safe, they're surrounded by like-minded people, close to study and transport. Just to give you a snapshot of Australia's purpose-built student accommodation sector, it's the fourth largest student market in the world. There are over 200 developments in Australia, 76,000 purpose-built beds are provided for students and approximately $4,400 is spent per month per student. Today, we're speaking with Tori Brown, who's the Executive Director of Student Accommodation at the Property Council of Australia. Welcome to the show, Tori.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Tori, Jess has given a great introduction, but can you give our listeners a brief bio on, about yourself? Um, how did you become interested in property?
0: Sure. So I've been a professional advocate in the property sector my entire life. Um, I've always been really interested in the intersection between politics and policy and Australian property. So Australians are obsessed with property as a nation. I think, you know, when you go to the UK and people talk about the weather as a conversation starter, in Australia we talk about property, we talk about housing, we talk about what the house down the street went for, and we're all really interested in the built form in and around our cities and our regional areas. So grew up with a healthy obsession about property. Um, didn't have the um, capacity to become an architect. I found all of the measurements and the sort of more technical elements quite challenging, but was still obsessed with it. So I ended up stitching together an advocacy career with property. And I now spend most of my time talking about how we can grow investors in Australian property and now with a specific focus on student-built accommodation, which is a really exciting young and vibrant sector that's growing in Australia.
1: And Tori, what is the Student Accommodation Council and why was that formed?
0: So we were formed in April of last year. It was in response to the way that the student accommodation sector was impacted during COVID. So obviously COVID was this huge storm that no one saw coming. Um, Purpose-built student student accommodation is heavily reliant on international students in Australia. And when Australia closed its borders, we lost huge amounts of our market share and a lot of international students actually went home during that time as well. So we suddenly had no residents, we had no assurances of when borders were going to reopen. And it became really clear that there was a a lack of advocacy of professional advocates um, who could talk about the sector and and talk about how it was being impacted. So the Property Council, which is an organisation which has existed for a long time in Australia, advocating for property owners and developers, realised that we needed a specialised arm to talk about this sector because it is so nuanced and it does face challenges that are quite different to the rest of the property sector so we started up this this body with the ten largest student accommodation developers and owners in Australia, and we've now been operating nearly for twelve months.
2: That's t- terrific background, Tory. And mm-hmm. before the the present, there was the traditional model for student accommodation, and probably people of my era are more familiar with, you know, student digs in mm-hmm. in a city and um, house sharing and things like that. Why? did the current system or model come about? What what was failing with the traditional model of student accommodation?
0: Sure. So student accommodation in Australia has been traditionally based around university colleges, that sort of Harry Potter experience of you go to study at a university, you live on campus, you might have, you know, a dormitory or a private room, um, heavily weighted towards other domestic students, uh, you know, with three meals a day. So quite a, I guess a bit of an old fashioned way of living on university campus, but that's quite limited in scale. And Australia really grew its international student cohort over the last 10, 20 years, which meant that we had huge amounts of students coming to live in Australia from overseas. We didn't have the capacity in colleges to house all of these young people. And also, you know, students from overseas were much more used to this communal living, student accommodation, um, housing option that we just didn't have in Australia. So we've really seen purpose-built student accommodation, and I'll keep referring to it as PBSA because that's what the industry refers to it as. We've seen PBSA grow since 2010 in Australia, and it was primarily to meet the demand from all of those international students who were coming over to live and study mostly in Australian CBDs. And so just
1: on that, Tori, what what, what is that market currently for student accommodation? Like what percentage um, of students would be foreign students versus interstate or intrastate?
0: Sure. So the private PBSA sector that's developed, owned and managed by private sector companies is about 76,500 beds across Australia Of those, a quarter of the students are domestic and the rest are international. We um, undertook a survey last year where we surveyed all of our members and looked at the demographics of everyone living in student accommodation. And we were quite surprised to find that 20% um, of young people living in student accommodation in Australia were actually Australian. Because certainly the stereotype is that it's, it's designed and built just for international students. But Australia is in the midst of a housing crisis, we simply don't have enough housing stock. So that means that young domestic students aren't able to find a share house or a rental property. So student accommodation is also becoming really popular with domestic students as well. But our largest markets are the domestic students and then the Chinese students who take up another 20%. And then it's a really lovely even spread across students from hundreds of countries, India, Nepal, Indonesia, even uh, Southern America, we have a lot of international students who are living in our buildings and it's very, very multicultural.
2: So, Tori, what does the student accommodation package usually mean for occupants? So just say I'm a foreign student, I'm coming to sign up. What do I sign up to and, and, you know, what do I get basically for that package?
0: So a student who gets a bed in a PBSA building has a range of different room options. You can choose to be in a self-contained studio apartment, which are probably the most common bed types in Australia. So that gives you your own room with your own bathroom, usually a little kitchenette with a you know fridge and a hot plate, um, your own bed, storage and a desk. And it's always fully furnished. So you can arrive in Australia and not have anything and still move into a fully furnished room. There are also uh, shared apartments, where, which is usually a cheaper price point, where you might be sharing a living room and a larger kitchen and a couple of bathrooms with, you know, four, five or six, upwards sometimes maybe to eight other students who all have their own rooms. They operate more like a shared apartment um, Those are really popular as well because they're a little bit more affordable, but they're also a great way for students to meet people and live with friends if they're coming over with a group of friends. And what happens is the cost of your rent includes all of your utilities, so your internet, your water, your electricity, 24-hour security. It's, it's an all-inclusive option which is quite different to if you were to arrive in Australia and rent a room in a private house or rent an apartment you'd pay you know a weekly rental but you'd then be expected to cover all the utilities on top of that and organize your own wi-fi and those sorts of things whereas a student who lives in a PBSA building arrives in Australia they get their room fully furnished and they know that the cost of rent that they're paying per week includes all of those overheads. The other benefit of for international students in particular is that you can apply for a PDSA bed while you're still overseas and you'll know within 24 hours whether or not you've been successful in getting that room so it's a very quick streamlined process and it gives you great surety when you arrive that you know where you're going. The Australian rental market at the moment is so tight, particularly in places like Sydney and Brisbane, that to try and find a rental property once you get in Australia is becoming increasingly difficult. You have to line up with hundreds of other people to have a look at an apartment, and then you've got to put in an application that can take weeks to be approved. So for international students in particular, student accommodation is great because they can arrive knowing where they're going to live and knowing exactly what they're going to pay.
1: Is there also um, a level of bias, I guess, against uh, international students in the private rental market, you know, particularly if they're still living overseas and they're applying or maybe their parents are applying on on their behalf? Does that make it more difficult for them to get into
0: that market? It does because they don't have a rental history in Australia. And most real estate agents will want to have your last few places that you've lived so they can contact, you know, other agents and make sure you've been a good tenant so, if you've been living at home you know, in Indonesia and you're arriving in Australia trying to find a room, you don't have any rental history that the Australian you know, real estate agents would accept. So, it does mean that you're on the back foot a little bit. Um, it also means because international students tend to be more mobile and they move around a little bit more, um, they're less appealing to landlords because they're more likely to be shorter term tenants. Whereas PBSA buildings, their entire model is predicated on the fact that these leases are going to be short-term leases, maybe, you know, one semester to a year. Um, So the model is geared for that kind of movement, whereas the private rental market is just simply not set up for that kind of living arrangement. Mm. And so, Tori, as well, just thinking back to, again,
1: those more traditional uh, student housing models that Pete was referring to earlier, like the the traditional colleges, those sorts of models have common dining rooms, social clubs and those sorts of things. Are there other collective spaces for socialising that these international students have access to in these buildings?
0: Absolutely. So the design of PDSA buildings in Australia Um, always has large communal spaces and particularly the sort of next generation of buildings that we're seeing coming online since 2018, they're designed around, you know, entire floors of communal spaces with theatres, sometimes outdoor rooftop theatres, sometimes swimming pools, large communal kitchens so you can have a cook-up with your friends, you know, you're not all just only allowed to cook in your rooms gardens, public spaces. So there's a lot of room to socialise and what we find is that international students do utilise and domestic students living in these buildings utilise those communal spaces um, in a really great way because at the end of the day they're young people and they're here to make friends and have an Australian experience as much as they are to study and to stay in their rooms. So it's, it's, it's similar in a way that they're encouraged to make friends and communicate. And there's a lot of different programs that are run throughout the buildings to bring students together. Um, But also the the buildings are designed to make sure that there's a lot of chance to meet people and network. So from that point of view, it's similar to a college. The only difference is that you sort of don't have the mass dining rooms um, with, you know, someone else doing all the cooking. It's, It's more of an independent model
2: we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website.
1: This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.1milegrid.com.au.
2: And, and Tori, uh, you said that um, this market's been sort of strong or you know, emerged about 15 years ago. What lessons have been learnt in terms of the design of student accommodation? Um, and you, You've outlined how it is now, but what are some of the design changes that have evolved over the, over the time and also any projections going forward about possible new changes?
0: We've seen a real shift towards different room types as we've worked out, you know, what is the most popular way for students to live. So studio apartments, particularly popular, but we've also seen, you know, rooms get bigger to allow for couples. Previously, you know, there was an assumption that students would be studying solo and they would only need one bed. But now we're finding that, you know, they might be coming over and they might be in a relationship or they may meet someone while they're here. And they'll want to move to a bed, you know, to a room that's bigger and more suitable for couples. So we're seeing a flexibility in rooms that we probably weren't seeing 10 years ago. We're also seeing a real um, intersection between how the buildings work and how they interface with the cities that they're in. So initially, planners, you know, in city councils and in government wanted student accommodation buildings to operate a little bit like a residential building. So there was. Rules around how many car parks you had to have, and you know how how much space you had to have um, to accommodate for different things like you know um, end of trip facilities and those sorts of things. But what we've found is that as the planners, developers, and the market has matured, they've realised that students don't use the buildings in the same way as you know an older couple who might live in a residential building in the CBD students don't need one car park per apartment most of these students are coming from overseas and they don't have cars but they might really like shared e-bikes they might like to have more bike parking so we're seeing a change in how the buildings are working and we're also seeing a greater acceptance and understanding within the planning community about what is and isn't appropriate for student accommodation so rather than having rules around car parking let's have more flexibility about Connecting directly with the transport hub. Let's make it um, more useful for young people so they can come and go on their bikes, you know, in and out of shared foyers. So it, there's certainly been a change, and we're learning all the time because it is quite a new asset class in Australia. Um, but definitely, that's been the biggest change.
1: And I think Tori, we're starting to see, um, particularly in the Victorian context or the Melbourne context, that the city councils have their own um, guidelines that are within the planning scheme and make it really clear to the developers what the expectation is around all of those um, features that you're talking about. Um, I'm not sure if that's sort of across the board yet across Australia in all of our capital cities, or so in all of our cities. Um, is is that are you starting to see that be consistent?
0: It's still very dependent on the council area that you're in. So the City of Melbourne have been really progressive in their um, understanding and their engagement with the student accommodation sector. So they are really sort of the best in show when it comes to development of student accommodation and understanding of the asset class. We are finding that some other states, there is no distinct rules or definitions around what student accommodation is. Um, So we do find that our members are having to make themselves fit into definitions that are suitable for residential developments. Um, So it is a bit of a moving feast and it's something that we do need to see some comprehensive and, you know, streamlined guidelines and understandings across different cities and states about how the buildings work Um, because they aren't like, you know, sometimes we're captured under regulations call us boarding houses and you know student accommodation are not boarding houses and we're also not colleges but we're also not residential apartments so it is it is a constant source of consternation for me and my members trying to fit within the different planning regulations and guidelines at a state and council level.
1: I'm guessing as well that probably one of the um, one of the other challenges I guess in this sector is pushback from councils and authorities and even the community around how potentially these buildings could be retrofitted um, in the circumstance where uh, student housing was no longer required or the demand for it um, fell substantially. Is that something you've experienced?
0: COVID was an interesting time because it meant that most of our buildings were, if they weren't empty, they were running at 10, 20% capacity because we didn't have international students. So there was some talk then about, you know, how do we change the use of these buildings during the pandemic to make them into, you know, quarantine hotels or emergency accommodation. Um, We had some examples where they were turned into emergency accommodation for um, refugees from Afghanistan who were coming over at the end of the war. But by and large, student accommodation cannot have its use changed as part of its planning rules and planning approval. It can only house people who are enrolled to study. They don't have to be a university student. They could be, uh, you know, a trade student, a vet student, or an English language college student. Um, But by and large, the planning rules around student accommodation does restrict the change of use, um, which we think is appropriate because we do want student accommodation to be reserved for students, it makes the community within the buildings work better. What we've also found is that during COVID, people realised how important students are to our CBDs. To remove an entire population of people from Australian CBDs had a huge impact on the rest of the CBD economy, from the hospitality to the lack of skilled workers who are working in the restaurants and in the tourism businesses, often international students who live in our student accommodation buildings are filling these really critical roles in CBDs. So while it was a terrible time for the industry, it was also a great demonstration of how important our sector is at providing a population in a CBD that's, you know, an active population that's working and that's spending. So we've now been able to point to the Um, to the pandemic and say, well, this was worst case scenario. Look what your city is like with no students. And now look what it's like at the moment, you know, in the beginning of 2023 when the buildings are full and the cities are vibrant and they're operating again. And I think it's given everyone a newfound respect for what these buildings do.
2: Mm. Good point, Tori. And uh, Tori, on uh, follow-up surveys, do you, is there surveys of residents to determine What works for them? Is there some sort of feedback loop there?
0: There is. So all of my members provide surveys to their tenants, you know, once they break a lease or once they finish up, and also just to touch base with them throughout the year to make sure that they're having a good experience. So student experience is central to the way these buildings are run. It's taken very, very seriously, and they're constantly updating their models to make sure it's giving the students what they want. So,
1: Tori, just thinking about uh, why developers enter this market rather than standard apartment buildings, is mm. is there a is there an attraction or a specific attraction for developers? And are we likely to continue to see that demand from developers in this market?
0: Definitely. So, at the moment, in particular, with the sort of global economic headwinds that we're seeing. Student accommodation is showing itself to be a really resilient asset class. The demand is huge internationally across all of these assets, but the Australian yields for PDSA developments are also really high. We're sitting in around 6% to 8% depending on your city, whereas in London and Paris the yields are around 3 to 3.5%. So really good return for investors. Um, It also operates differently when you're doing a residential development you need to have you know 40% of your apartments pre-sold before you start the development to even make it viable Uh, and then obviously you're you're selling all the apartments on so you're not holding on to the asset for a long time, whereas student accommodation buildings they're built as a rental effectively like a build to rent model and then investors hold it for a longer period of time to then get those returns, so it is a different, um, a different sort of building for investors, but we're finding that it's also quite resilient when compared to commercial property where you're seeing the work from home phenomenon impact, you know, how investors are looking at commercial property. Student accommodation is tenanted and busy 24 hours a day. It's a 24-hour it's a asset class. And it's not dependent on whether or not a worker feels like going in on a Monday. So it is quite a different asset class. And it's one that's really having its renaissance in Australia right now as investors look for different sectors that have strong user demand and positive macroeconomic tailwinds.
2: Tori, turning to some of the common misconceptions about student accommodation housing, um, mm-hmm. some people might you know, unfairly call it battery cages for people mm-hmm. because they don't understand it. What, yeah. what, what do you say are the, sort of the main common misconceptions and what would you say to those sort of um, concerns?
0: The best thing that anyone can do is to get inside one of these buildings and have a look around I spend a lot of my time taking government officials, council officials and, you know, interested stakeholders in and through PBSA assets in Australia because the stereotypes and, you know, when you hear people repeat these stereotypes, they invariably haven't been into a PBSA building in one of the Australian CBDs. They might have, you know, a stereotype in their head from, their time studying, you know, when they were in uni in the 70s, or they might have an an image in their head based on an international example. But the buildings that have been built in Australia simply don't operate in that Rackham and and Stackham model that people are so scared about. And once you get into these buildings, you realise that the rooms, you know, while the rooms may be smaller than you'd expect to live in if you were a retiree, you know buying a, an apartment um, with a spare room for the grandkids they're smaller because international students and domestic students they're not in their rooms most of the time they're in the shared theaters or they're in the gaming room or they're in the podcast room they're using the entire building so it is an entirely different use which is appropriate and custom made for students and the more that we can take people into buildings, the better. Because once you've you know, walked inside any glue building or escape building and you've seen that you can you know jump in the slide from level one and go down to the ground floor sitting on a slide in two seconds and you can see how fun and interactive these buildings are, you really do get a new appreciation for how they're designed. Um, yeah, those stereotypes are really frustrating and the best thing we can do is educate people.
1: And Tori, I'm interested in what level of communication uh, the operators of these buildings have with the universities. I'm assuming they would be in very close contact at all time to understand what the demand is likely to be for coming years, um, enrollment numbers and so forth, because obviously if there are shortages of accommodation, the universities will struggle to attract more students.
0: Hmm. Universities have relationships direct with my members so it does depend a little bit on the university and how engaged they have been um, historically with you know the private sector. We find a lot of universities have a referral system so they might have their own college and they'll usually want to see their own colleges or college filled up first And then once they've hit their capacity, they will refer students who are looking for accommodation onto preferred preferred providers that are located close by. So they'll say, you know, there's a a great student accommodation building just over the road. You know, this is their website. This is how you contact them. So they do work in partnership with my members. There's not always a huge amount of transparency on enrolment numbers at a university. I mean, it's hard to know sometimes how many of those students will be coming over having not had student accommodation arranged or somewhere to stay arranged. Um, So that is something that we'd like some more transparency on. And we've seen that with the um, announcement from the Chinese government that they weren't going to recognise degrees that were studied entirely online. So we know from student visa numbers that there were 40,000 students in China who were enrolled in Australian institutions that had to come home or had to come back to Australia in the last couple of weeks. But the split of where exactly all of those students were going, which institutions they were going to, we didn't have that insight, which meant that, you know, we weren't sure if it was going to be, you know, more heavily impacting my members in Melbourne or Sydney. So there is some more sharing, I think, of data that could be done. But there is, you know, always a constant communication between the universities and the tertiary institutions and my members, particularly where they're really closely located.
1: And what about forecasting numbers? You know, I'm thinking sort of 10, 20 years ahead. Is that kind Mm -hmm. of data available? I'm just thinking for um, developers in this space, how do they get the assurance that there there is going to be continued demand um, for Mm -hmm. additional spaces?
0: So there is, I mean, it's a tricky area because we've seen that the data can be you can't, you know, it's it's fallible. We had predictions on how long it would take all the international students to return back to Australia after COVID. And we weren't expecting to reach the levels that we're at now and for another two years. Um, so all of the predictions and all of the, the data sets that you know had students returning were a little bit soft. They've come back quicker than we were expecting. But, you know, the Department of Migration, the Department of Immigration, do have a set amount of you know visas and pathways. So they're pretty good at allowing us to get an insight into how many students we can expect. And universities also set targets about how many international students they would like to grow um, over the forward estimates so that they can grow the amount of um, students studying at their institutions. So they'll often set targets, and we then work towards, okay, well, University of you know Queensland is expecting another 4,000 international students over the next four years. If they can achieve that, that will put, you know, this many young people in the area. So there are different data sets and different ways of sort of tracking expectations. But once it comes to actual enrolment numbers and students arriving with, you know, boots on the ground, that's when we start to see, you know, predictions can sometimes be a little bit soft. Mm-hmm.
2: And Tori, a couple of questions. What's the typical tenure for students? And what happens during semester breaks in terms of the occupancy? So
0: it used to be that we would expect students to book for a semester, maybe half a year, maybe a full year. um, But we didn't expect them to stay much more than a year. We found that students would arrive primarily their first year of study in Australia. They would book into an international student sort of Friendly PBSA building. And then they might meet people, they might decide to get a share house together, they might, you know, fall in love with someone, um, and they might move on to a different housing choice. But because of the really tight residential market and the really, really tight student accommodation availability, we're now finding that students are staying put longer. And we're finding that we're not having that churn of students who are only staying for six months or who are breaking their lease at the end of a semester. So the movement within the buildings has lessened and we're finding people re-signing their leases um, much more frequently. So my members will always give priority to a resident who's been in the building already. And if they say, I would like to re-sign for another year, they'll always be given sort of first bite of the cherry to be able to do that. And what we're finding is that that's become a hugely popular option this year in particular, which means that students are staying longer and we don't have that churn that allows us to put new residents into the buildings.
1: Now, we covered off on on planning controls a little bit earlier in terms Mm -hmm. of... City of Melbourne, for example, being probably the the leader in Australia in terms of what they've currently got. Mm-hmm. Are there other things from a planning control perspective that your members are advocating for in terms of, I don't know, particular zoning or overlays and things like that, that would enable the sector to, I guess, get approvals more efficiently and construct more efficiently? Mm-hmm.
0: What we'd really like to see is a better understanding, particularly when governments are looking at zonings in and around educational institutions, often student accommodation isn't written into the zoning plans around educational institutions or transport hubs, which means that you know, we have to go through the development application process along with you know, residential developments and every everything else. Um, And we do think it's appropriate that student accommodation be considered when you're looking at developing land adjacent to a university. The other thing we'd really like to see is student accommodation given expedited planning approvals in areas of great demand. We know that there are a number of cities in Australia right now where there is no availability at all across any of my members' buildings, across any of the university colleges and accommodation options. And we also know that the rental market availability is sitting below 1%. So it's a big problem and it's something we need to start working on now, but it still takes four years from land acquisition to getting your first student in. And that's in a best case scenario in a city like Sydney. So we would love to see student accommodation given a faster pathway. In New South Wales, build to rent was given an expedited pathway so that we could try and get some build to rent assets out of the ground quicker. We think student accommodation should be treated in the same way because it services effectively you know, a similar part of the market. It's servicing people who will not be buying properties in Australia but who are looking for secure rental options. And it also takes students out of the rental market. Because you have to be a student to live in student accommodation, it means that you're not competing with key workers and mums and dads in the resi rental market. The more stock that we can add, you know, and more quickly, the more we're going to be able to free up that really tight resi rental market at the same time.
2: Uh, Tori, like most things, it's a supply constraint issue with lots of parts of it. um, and uh, it sounds like a, a pretty dumb question, <laughs> and uh, but I, I suppose these points need to be repeated. Um, what you know? What are the ideal locations for student housing?
0: So obviously, my members love to have um, land sites that are close to places where young people are studying. We're seeing you know a lot of development happening um, near the Macquarie University and UNSW. Um, We're seeing anything that's adjacent to a university is very attractive to my members. And then, you know, they know that most of the students who live in their building will come from one or two particular feeder unis. But the other thing we're finding is that just being located on a really good transport link is, is perfect as well. So you don't need to be next to a university, but you do want to have, you know, either a train station really close by or a really great bus passageway. To make it easy for students to get in and out of CBDS and the places where they study, you know, we're not designing buildings with hundreds and hundreds of car parks by and large. So it is important that we're located on good transport hubs.
1: And I guess in addition to that, having that variety in location, so um, not necessarily having the buildings directly opposite universities, but having them just within good proximity and on transport routes is also important because that's going to diversify um, the affordability affordability element for those students.
0: Absolutely. And you'll find that different cities have different price points as well. Um, You know, if you're staying in an apartment, you know, self-contained studio in one of my members' assets right next to a university in the middle of the CBD, you'd be paying, you know, a slightly higher price most likely than if you were studying at a regional university where the market you know, demands a lower price. Um, Australian universities, by and large, are located in CBDs, so that is a slightly different model than we've seen overseas, where you might have cities like Oxford and Cambridge, which are real university towns, and the towns are developed around and sort of part of the the ecosystem of the university. Whereas in Australia, our universities are in CBDs. So we do need to have stock that allows students to come and go and live in CBDs and and walk to uni and walk to where they're studying. Um, And transport's a hugely important part of that. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details.
1: And just to finish off, Tori, what is the Student Accommodation Council doing to increase awareness of this housing type? And what, I guess, what are the advocacy um, elements that you're focusing on at the moment?
0: So, the Property Council at the moment is particularly focused on the entire housing market across Australia. We have a terrible undersupply of residential housing. And we think that student accommodation is a bit of a silver bullet because the more student accommodation you have, the more young people who are living and working in our CBDs and studying in our CBDs, but it also means that we're freeing up space in the rental market. So we would really love to see more student accommodation come online where it's needed. And not only will it keep people who are arriving in Australia to study safe and give them options that are culturally appropriate and connect them with other young people, but it also allows the rental market to breathe for people to find somewhere to live Because at the moment, it is just unbelievably tight across the entire housing spectrum. And so we keep um, advocating to government. We keep trying to educate people about what the student accommodation asset class is, why it's important, who is investing in it, and how we can remove some of those barriers to investment. In Australia, student accommodation is largely underpinned by international capital And international investors, they're captured by a whole lot of um, taxes that domestic investors aren't captured by, foreign investor taxes. Knowing that, we need to remove some of these foreign investor taxes to allow this asset class to grow because it is so desperately needed and we do have such a huge undersupply but we're putting barriers in the way by the way of taxes and regulations and slow planning processes. So we spend a lot of our time talking about how we can get this asset class growing faster.
2: Well, hope, hopefully this podcast has helped your efforts, Tori, <laughs> and also an understanding of of the, you know this sector of the the housing market. And uh, you mm. know, I can I know that there's taxes on foreign property developers, but I would mm-hmm. have thought this class of development was of a different type completely to what the governments have. Probably trying to avoid with uh, other sort of taxes on development. Is, mm. do you, do you, is that fair?
0: Yeah, I agree. I think foreign investor charges were really brought in to stop um, international investors sort of land banking residential buildings, not living in them. You know, tying up um, properties that they were that they weren't living in and had no intention of living in. Whereas. This asset class is unlocking housing and we know that it has to be unlocked by international investment because domestic investors just aren't there yet when it comes to investing in such a new asset class. So the fact that we're making it harder to grow an asset that increases housing supply does seem to fly in the face of what these foreign investor fees were brought in for in the first place.
2: Mm. Well, now, Tori, on to Podcast Extra, Culture Corner. This is a a, a section where we ask our guests and um, uh, something they've watched, seen, done, experienced that might be of interest to our listeners. Tori, you've you've got some, I think.
0: I do. So I have one serious one. Um, If anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about the investment um, environment right now for PDSA and why it's really attractive i'd recommend reading an article called investors backing student beds in downturn which is on the urban developers website um, and is a recent article it gives a really good sort of overview of of how the market is feeling and then for something a little bit fun um, i've recently started watching poker face on stand which is by ryan I think his name is Ryan Johnston, who did Glass, Onion and Knives Out. Um, and it's it, it's a sort of formulaic murder mystery. Each episode is very fun. It's kind of like Miss Marple, but set in 2023. So it's a great way of sort of settling in. It's got a beginning, middle and end. It's got a fantastic cast and it's just very, very enjoyable. So if you're looking for something that's funny and um, has a little bit of intrigue, I can't recommend Poker Face enough.
2: Well, we'll put links to both of those things, Tori, on on, on the episode notes. Um, Jess, your podcast extra.
1: I don't have a book this time, Pete, but more of an activity. Um, I've just been struggling recently to find time in my life to really get through, I guess, all of those, not necessarily life admin, but a little bit of life admin, but even admin associated with work and um, the podcast and all kinds of things. So what I've actually done now is on Tuesday mornings, um, uh, my husband drops our child off at, at daycare really, really early. And I go into the city really early, go to a cafe um, from, you know, 7, 7.30 onwards, and just have an hour of me time where I can get through a lot of that sort of background um, emails and stuff that you just never ever get to so it's been really really good for me and just actually having an hour to myself having a coffee by myself which is great um, so I can highly recommend just carving out some time in your week if you've got young kids and life's all just pretty busy a really good way of um, getting through it
2: oh, what about you Pete? Oh yes. that's uh, oh look if you if you ever want to have a chat I'll come and have a coffee with you but you probably don't want me there. But I don't um, want
1: you there. That's the point.
2: <laughs> no, it's, so, it's
1: time to get things done.
2: <laughs> oh, sorry, Jess. Um, well, well, Tori. I, 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 you know, I'm. I love music, of course, but everyone does. But I was. I saw. I rewatched a YouTube video clip the other day of ACDC, You know, the Australian band. Uh, they filmed. They filmed. Uh, it's a long way to the top. If you want to rock and roll. They, I don't know whether you've seen this, Tori, but they hide a flatbed truck in 1976 in February. Have you seen this film clip?
0: No, I haven't, but it's one of my stepfather's favourite bands and we know that if ACDC goes on, the red wine's been out for a little while.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, what they do in this film clip, and it's on YouTube, um, they drive slowly down Swanston Street, and for our listeners, that's, the main spine of Melbourne, the CBD. And you can't drive down there now because the fascist planners have stopped cars there. It's only Mm -hmm. pedestrians and trams. But what the band did is they got on a flatbed truck and drove slowly and sang this song as they drove down Swanson street. And it's a fascinating insight to what Melbourne looked like in those days. And it's, It's an incredibly audacious, you know, um, outrageous thing to do because they're all on the back of this truck and they've got bagpipes as well and they're playing along. But I was thinking about how certain music defines cities and places, and if if I was if I was head of a, a, a a city, I would just say to bands, look, here's X amount of thousands. Just write some good songs about my city or my place and. Um, what Any thoughts on that, Tori?
0: Well, absolutely. I'm an Adelaide girl and um, Ben Folds, who I'm a big fan of, who was in the Ben Folds Five, lived in Adelaide for a while and wrote a song all about Adelaide and that became quite iconic and you know, it was a real source of pride um, for us. And also um, the, uh, is it Cold Chisel? I think they started yes. in the northern suburbs of Adelaide they, as well. They did, like yes. Jimmy Barnes. We've certainly got a a real love for that sort of working class hero, you know, narrative that was born out of the northern suburbs of Adelaide. So definitely iconic music can really shape a place.
2: And and what do you think, Jess? I mean, if you were the CEO or the, you know, committee for Melbourne or committee for Sydney, would you commission, you know, like just say his his 20,000 band or rappers make some music as long as it's not too bad about the city yeah what are I your mean, thoughts i jess? think that's
1: great exposure for the city
2: like like hands up for detroit you know that sort of song <laughs> and, yeah. surprised so, you even
1: know what that is
2: <laughs> oh you're surprised i know what it is you're just she's getting crueler and crueler tori and um all right so and also i thought one final thing jess we should start uh, i'm thinking about the planning exchange spotify playlist
1: oh that would be eclectic pete
2: All right. Very eclectic. Now, now, Tori, Tori, you've been a tremendous guest. Any final message to our listeners, Tori?
0: Only that student accommodation is, you know, it's really fun. And if you do have an opportunity to get inside one of these buildings to have a look around, I'd really recommend that you do it. And the next time you're walking through a city, take notice of where these buildings are and the amount of people going in and out of them and the amount of life that they bring to our CBDs, because they are doing something really special at the moment.
2: Thanks so much, Tori, and and thanks, Jess.
0: Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear
1: more of our podcasts, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind-the-scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.